So there are many times in the Gospels when Jesus asks people to follow him. And the nature of his question to them and to us is never who of you believes in me with your heads only, but who of you is willing to follow me with everything you have and are. I'd like us to appreciate this morning how important this question is for us, for Mark, the writer of the Gospel, for his first audience who would have read this Gospel after it was first published, and for every reader ever since till us today, by looking at where he's positioned it in his Gospel. Before we do that, it's worth just noting, says N.T. Wright, that contrary to popular opinion that the disciples and the authors of the Gospels were uneducated, um, uncouth people, Mark is an incredibly skilled writer, he says, and really brilliant with how he structures his gospel. And we don't actually have time to go into all of that, although if you, we want to do another session on that, it would be marvellous to see how Mark structured intricately his work. But um, we're going to pick on a couple of things this morning to help us answer this question. It's a masterpiece, says N.T. Wright, and the arrangement of his material is nothing short of literary brilliance. So here we go. First, to paraphrase a football cliche, Mark is a gospel of two halves. And who do you say that I am? This question in verse 8, chapter 9, comes slap in the middle of 16 chapters. You know, there's 16 chapters in the middle in, in Mark's gospel, and this question comes at the point 8, verse 29. It's almost perfect mid center to his structure. The way the gospel is structured around that question is that everything before this leads up to this moment, the birth, the healings, the miracles, the teachings, the demon castings, the answering back to the critics, all the, I'm low to say this, but all the fun stuff of Jesus' ministry and everything after it leads away from this question, or down if you like, down to the final few weeks for Jesus leading to Jerusalem, to his rejection, to the trial, to his suffering, and to the cross. Were you aware of that? It's absolutely brilliantly written. So the first half is quite a few years, obviously most of Jesus's life, chronologically, and interestingly, after that question, which is another half of his gospel, it's only a few weeks and months chronologically. Before 8 verse 29, the disciples are feeling quite good, actually. They're enjoying being around a popular Jesus, and a Jesus who's amazed and squashed his critics. It's a win-win for them, actually. There's no disadvantage 
to being a disciple at this point. After 8 verse 29, they're going to be faced with everything that you and I would wish to avoid if we possibly could. And we find that just a few hang around to be prepared for what's to come. And so Jesus' question and pizza, pizzas, I can't believe I said that. Peter's answer is the hinge text, the watershed, the tipping point of Mark's gospel. Now you may say, and I'm saying to myself this morning, that's, that's very nice to know all that, but I'd like you to feel that I'm not sharing this just to throw around information. What's the point in that? We want to know why that structure why has he organized his material like that? And basically, we find it in the text we had right at the beginning in Mark 1, 1, that this is to declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So Mark writes like this to challenge Peter and to challenge the first readers and to challenge every reader ever since, for a decision about Jesus. Not just to know what's up here, but for a decision. And what's happening is that Peter, up to this point, is slowly and in some ways through great difficulty, having trouble, but still slowly recognizing Jesus as the Christ. And Mark is giving his reader, including us, the capacity to recognize and name Jesus for who he really is. Once we know this, says Mark, we're going to be able to work out what is worth living and dying for. So a bit more about the structure of the gospel. The location for the conversation between Jesus and his disciples is Caesarea Philippi. And Richard taught us about Caesarea Philippi a little while back. Do you remember? It was the, it was the site of many altars to many gods. Do you remember us? And he, he showed us some pictures of that on the map. And it was a multi-faith center as kind of a, a metropolis, if you like, of altars to many gods. And they were hosting these altars. And I guess if we wanted to reimagine that context, wasn't, it's not specifically altars out there on Oxford Street. In terms of the things that we make religion these days, what's out there on the high street. We could imagine this as Jesus standing outside those doors on our multicultural consumer-worshipping Oxford Street and we're his disciples and we're standing with him and he's looking around and he's saying, so in the middle of all these competing loyalties, who do these people, who do these shoppers, who do these tourists say that I am? Who do they think I am in the middle of all this? But then comes the big one. And what about you? Who do you say that I am? Enough of them, Peter. What about you? What about you, my own team? 
What have you decided? Andrew, David, Lyndon, what have you decided? Carol, Jacqueline, Lizzie, Trish, Amy, what have you decided about me? Who do you say that I am? And the text demands a response from us. And Mark has led us to this point in order that we might have what we need to reach a decision. No decisions this big and this fundamental are that easy, are they? On one hand, we come to such massive moments in humble faith, aware of our incomplete knowledge in all things, and yet we must make decisions which will form the foundation of how we're going to live our lives from birth to death. You see, if we don't, others are going to decide it for us. By our words and actions, says Paul Ricoeur, the great philosopher, we will give our testimony. I do believe that when Paul replied, you are the Messiah, he actually meant it 100%. But nobody really knows what it means to follow Jesus, do they? Until we're actually on the road with him. Until we're on the road to Jerusalem with him. And Peter, to be fair, unlike us who know the end of the story, because we get to read the gospel from beginning to end, is thinking, I think he's thinking, Jesus, I think you're the one who's going to purify our society. I think you're going to re-establish Israel's supremacy among nations. Jesus, I think you're going to usher in a new, period, a new era of peace. Jesus, I'm expecting big things from you. He didn't know what was coming after this confession. The second thing about Mark's structure, it's the only other thing I'm going to share this morning, we're going to do a bit more in our small group tomorrow, is that 829, that very verse, is kind of bookended by the stories of two blind men. It's a literary device by Mark, a brilliant one. So we read, didn't we, 822-26 at the beginning of the service this morning, the story of the blind man at Bethesda, and four verses later, after the crucial text, is another blind man's story. Who is that? Peter. Peter is now the blind man. One physically but blind, says Jesus, the other spiritually blind. It's a great device to send the blunt message, and those original readers would have got this, we need it translating. 
the blunt message that what's going on in the second story of Peter mirrors the first one. It's some, a device Mark uses quite often in his text. Peter, you are just not seeing what I'm saying. And if you notice the story of the blind man at Bethesda, it was a slow healing, wasn't it? It wasn't an instant. I never quite get that, why Jesus actually heals the blind man, but it doesn't quite work. But, you know, it's sort of, you can see, see people, but they look like trees, do you remember? And then it's the clear sight, the slow work of Christ. Not because he's slow, but because we are. And for Peter, it's a slow waking up. Wake up. Wake up, Peter. And so to help him, what Jesus next describes sets out a future that Peter could never have imagined. For starters, coming out of Jewish tradition, the concept of a suffering Messiah was completely unknown. And then culturally and personally, the idea of public humiliation, execution, suffering, and then being taken to a cross and raised on the third day. Repulsive to Peter, repulsive to us. I love, love, love Mark's gospel for its raw honesty. The other gospels were written slightly later and they get a bit kind of polished up. Do you know what I mean? The, the rough bits get taken out to make the disciples seem a bit nicer, a bit more holy a bit more golden, a bit more of a halo. But Mark says it as it is. And what I love about this text is Jesus and Peter have a tiff between them. Peter tells Jesus off for mentioning, mentioning suffering and Jesus, the word says, snaps back. Get behind me, Satan. Tempt her. Introduce her introducer of hesitation, mixer of motivations, flaunter of red herrings, side-tracker of missions, setter of mind on the wrong things. They're not my paraphrases, I got them from somewhere else, but actually I've really enjoyed telling you those paraphrases this morning. Do you know why? It's a bit off the side, but this week I had a really vivid dream, and in that dream I was giving, no, I wasn't giving this uh, teaching, Richard was. And he was using all my phrases. And he had my text. And he gave, and I could see these phrases as clearly as anything in the dream. And he was giving them. And I was sitting behind. And you guys were all cheering as he did. And I'm going, I wrote that. So if you'd like to tell me the meaning of that dream, I'm very happy about that. So I'm going to say them again. Tempter, introducer of hesitation, mixer of motivations, flaunter of red herring, sidetracker of mission, setter of mind on the wrong things. Get back in line, Peter. Follow me. Jesus tells us too that we, like him, must face where he goes if we're going to follow him. Our journey, like his, will lead to 
Jerusalem and it will be via the cross on the way to resurrection. So when you hear preachings that never mention the cross, you can critique them, you can disagree, you can turn the television off. It's not the gospel and it's not the good news. And that's why I love that we've got our new cross to remind us that there's no other way than via it. Why must Jesus suffer? Is there some divine plan to kill him? That's not my theology. I hope it's not yours. But you see, if love is to confront death, Jesus must confront the human addiction for self-preservation to choices that close us off, that turn us from connectedness to the Father and to each other and to creation. Ways that will end in isolation and fear and greed and brutality and finally, it will always be violence. That is the scandal of the cross and God is willing to suffer those consequences to free us to live. We assume that life is ours to do as we please, that it belongs to us. Then we get clingy, clinging for dear life to people, possessions, substances, our looks or our personal status, and our arms grow heavy, carrying around our own lives. We can try to do that, says Jesus, but be sure that we will lose our God-given identity if we do. So we must go where Jesus is going because he promises it will lead to life, even with the cost. And so we say this morning, there is no glory in suffering for its own sake. It's just inevitable when, like Jesus, we're called to choose strategies that oppose the death-dealing systems and powers at war with the loving reign and rule of God. It just will happen. If you want to live, Jesus says, relinquish your tight hold. Look for ways to give yourself away. If you want to save your God-given identity, hand over those things that crush the life out of you, those petty obsessions and mistaken priorities. What does this all look like for us as modern-day disciples, first world, middle-class Britain? Where should I holiday? Does camping or cruising or a hotel make a difference? Should I pursue this job promotion or should I stay put? Should I spend money on theatre tickets or is that self-indulgence? If I have beautiful things in my home, what will it do to my soul to pass a homeless person asking for money? We're sometimes focused on our investments, but struggle to stay awake in our daily prayers. 
I don't have those answers. I wish it was that easy we could tick boxes. And I guess those answers, like for Peter, will take a lifetime for us to work through. But we have, and I love this, the community of faith where we can work it out together. To struggle with some of these questions as Jesus asks us, who do you say that I am? And that is why the cross must be central to keep us focused on the main thing. And in that, we will always be challenged to truly recognize Jesus, knowing it will cost us dearly at times. So may we embrace the way of Jesus, who went to the cross that we might live. May our closed hearts be broken through Christ's love and mercy. And may we know daily and deep in our bones that by giving ourselves away, we will find life in its truest and fullest sense. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, at the centre of our lives, our life is found only in you. So may we let go of all that is not life, all that is not you, that we may live in freedom granted through the cross. Amen.